Lights, camera, action. Hey, welcome to Mixed Take, a world outspoken podcast where we discuss how the mixing of cultures and heritages in the U.S. influence film, television, and other forms of media and entertainment. So don't be surprised to hear us laughing and geeking out over the movies and shows that we cover. We hunt demogorgons, want yes. to one day move our families to the Shire, totally, and still dream of a world led by Daenerys Targaryen. Yes, dream all the time. You know what? My all-inclusive Shire Resort vacation has been suspended due to COVID. I had the wardrobe open. I was ready to step through, and a beaver bore the bad news. Anyway... Are you ready for some mixed take? Because I am. I'm Roberto Rivera, known to my family as Robertito or Tito, but you can call me by my assimilated name, Robert. I solemnly <laughs> swear that I am up to no good. I'm joined, as always, by the one who brings the boom to Zoom, the Zen master of Zencaster, my sister from another mister, the Sandra Bullock to my George Clooney, and the Hermione Granger to my Harry Potter, the one and the only... Danielle, you say, uh, holy cow, that was... you are ridiculous, yes. first of all. Ridiculous. And... That's what you say to dementors. <laughs> all right. And second Woo, of all. We are on a roll. That's amazing. Wow, I feel that's okay. Welcome to Mix Podcast. Mix Take. I can't, I don't even know We don't know I what am. this is and we don't care. We're just doing it. <laughs> I'm Danielle Isaiah, and today we are obviously excited. We're talking about the one, the only, the fabulous Alfonso Cuaron. That's right. That leads us to our quick takes. Hey, before we dive into the works and life of Alfonso Cuaron, Donnie, what's your quick take on him? Take one. All right, my quick take on Alfonso Cuaron is that he tells stories that are just really stark. So you're left contemplating the, the fate of the world. So basically, I think whatever story Cuaron is telling, we experience worlds that are you know both old and new, both familiar and foreign. I just love his style of storytelling. That's right. You're bringing the boom. <laughs> How about you, Robert? What's your quick take on Alfonso Cuaron? Alfonso Cuaron takes his time in storytelling to capture the nuances of humanity in the midst of struggle. Yeah. I really like the struggle piece that he brings to each of his films. It's beautiful stories of survival, resilience. Yeah. It's, it's real. It's real life. Absolutely. Like the blood, sweat, and tears of it. Pre-production and runtime. This is the part of the show where we explore the life and career of Alfonso Cuaron. So Alfonso Cuaron, he's the son of a doctor specializing in nuclear medicine and a pharmaceutical biochemist. I mean, talk about like, wow, right. exactly. super, super like heady parents. So naturally he became a filmmaker, right? Right. Ha -ha. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Naturally. Right. It's like the scientist had an artist baby. Like, that's so crazy, but really <laughs> cool. Um, so he grew up as a light-skinned, privileged boy from a middle class in Mexico City. Shout out to my people in Mexico City. Mexico! Hi! <laughs> we'll go deeper. We'll, you know, look into his life in just a little bit. But let's start by examining his film. So, Robert, tell us a little bit more. Movies are normally referred to as motion pictures. We know that, right? In the case of Alfonso Cuaron, his movies are more like motion portraits. Each frame is carefully crafted until it folds into a scene, and each scene comes together until it forms an artistic picture 
of human struggle and growth. That's beautiful. Just let me go ahead and say that. Well yeah. said, my brother, from another mother. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Why don't use specific techniques to accomplish this? Firstly, he likes to use what is referred to as ghost perspective, where the camera drifts from the main point of views and wanders around until the attention is once again recaptured by something else. It's basically like if my youngest boy was filming the movie. (laughs) And it's cool. Like as it pans around, you know, you hear like still the talking or the laughing or the car going by. What's the dog's name in Up? Oh, I can't remember the dog's up, name, we'll but, go, you know, yeah, he's yeah. like, squirrel. Yeah, I feel yeah. like that's what the camera's doing. It's like, oh, look, what's that? What's that over there? <laughs> it's so true. I also like that Cuaron, he likes to keep his distance between the camera and the actors. Mm-hmm. So I think this technique is used heavily in like Roma, often in Gravity. And there's scenes in Harry Potter that highlight the style. In the opening scene when Harry's aunt's like floating away like the balloon, which I thought was super dope. Yeah, definitely. Just like in the background of the scene, he's walking down the street and you see you see his aunt just floating away. But going back when Alfonso was young, he was given a Super 8 camera, which is like, again, that privilege. I didn't have a camera until I was like in my 20s. Yeah. And so he began filming movies with like family, neighbors, just like fun hobby type of stuff. His dream for making movies originated as a kid and really came to fruition when Hollywood approached him to direct the on-screen adaptation of Great Expectations. Yeah. So he made Great Expectation and really was disappointed. He didn't have a, a grasp for like the material, tried to overcompensate with, with visuals, which I think when you're a novice, when you're doing something young, you're trying to like meet the expectations of these people. Definitely. Especially if we're thinking like oh, yeah. U.S. movies. and Yeah, there's a lot of pressure to make oh, it successful. Goodness. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. So I think moving forward, he really was committed to like fleshing out themes in films. I think we can do one of two things when we're confronted with failure. We can either learn or we kind of crawl under a rock and it's like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. So yeah. I think for Cuaron in his resilience, which he often demonstrates in his characters, that's essentially what he had to do in his life was build up that resilience and learn. True that true that so one thing that i've noticed with guaron he's really honest about his failures do you think robert that it's disrespectful to talk about like a failed movie that the studio and actors were in or a part of what are your thoughts i heard him in several interviews talk about great expectations and mention how that was a failure and i thought about that what are the actors thinking, you know, as he's kind of throwing this movie oh, under man. under the bus? But what I really appreciate is that he takes the blame for it. He thinks the actors did great. He thinks everybody did a great job. His direction, though, was not refined yet. And he was trying to substitute depth. He didn't have a grasp on the script, so he didn't know how to flesh it out well right. enough. So he tried to use style to cover up those mistakes. Which is probably why later he spends so much time on like the research part of any movie that he delves into. Because he's like, okay, I need to really understand everything about this story and really make the world become the current world that I'm living in. Or else you miss out on the great storytelling aspects of knowing that particular world. Yeah, definitely. So why did Guaron make Harry Potter? You tell me, Robert. Well, yeah. After making the movie, <laughs> Itumama Tambien, he wanted to make Children of Men, but had trouble getting the project off the ground. When he 
was offered the opportunity to direct the third installment in the Harry Potter franchise, he laughed and he wondered, why me? So then, of course, Guillermo del Toro. The one and only. Papa G. He jumps into all of these stories, right? He's pretty much the Latino Gandalf, a.k.a. Gandolfo <laughs> or Gandule. I don't know. <laughs> That's perfect. I like Gandule. That works. Yeah. Ooh, Gantoro. Okay, carry <laughs> <laughs> He called Cuaron to ask what was going on, and Cuaron told him that he basically knew nothing about this franchise. Oh. That's when uh, Del Toro had some choice expletives. You better learn, yes. bruh. Listen yes. here. And yeah. he told him, get on that, read the script, and Cuaron did that. But Del Toro told him that if you're going to direct the movie, honor the material, don't try to do your stuff. Mm. I like that a lot. It's great advice because I'm trying to imagine Harry Potter filmed like Roma. <laughs> Harry standing there for like three minutes and his wand is barely sparking and maybe there's a cat that runs across the screen. Oh, man. And we're like, okay. And he's waiting for the night bus for three right. minutes. Enough is, enough is enough, Harry. Yeah. Uh, off topic, what would a Harry Potter movie look like if Guillermo del Toro directed it? Yo, I would be the first in line. Man, that would be super dope. Because Harry Potter is already pretty dark. But oh, man, yeah, definitely. I think Guillermo would take it to another level. Oh, yeah. That would be dope. Well, Guaron then read the script and he loved it. He loved the experience for the visuals and how it dealt with real life themes, especially the coming of age story. At first, he was doing wide shots and that unnerved the studio. Because they're like, the actors are too far. We need close-ups. Mm -hmm. But I think the final product, now that we see it, he blends those two things pretty well. Mm -hmm. The project was very enjoyable for him. And he says it was an honor to work with Gary Oldman. I just bring up Gary Oldman because I love Gary Oldman, especially as Commissioner Gordon in the Dark Knight series. He's just great. I don't know what else to say. Of course. He's serious black. Okay, it's no accident that Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is beloved. Guaron gives credit to Chris Columbus, the director of the first Harry Potter movie, maybe the second as well, for setting up the franchise and for the cast that Guaron inherited. Guaron's movie gave the studio the confidence to dump money into the franchise, and you'll notice that the visual effects from The Goblet of Fire and on are superior to the first three films. For the night bus scene, he tried to keep it simpler as opposed to the hippogriff scene that required photorealism. It was a perfect blend of a big-budget Hollywood movie and the Alfonso Cuaron style. This brings us to Cuaron's movie, Gravity, a movie that will take your breath away if you take off your space helmet in space. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that at home. Yeah, if you go to space, do not take off the helmet. <laughs> so that's the best advice you can ever give anyone going to space. You know, when watching or re-watching Gravity... I, I felt like is Sandra Bullock's I Am Legend. You know, she oh, carries yes. the film like most of the way through. I think 30 minutes in, she's left essentially by herself and, and you know, they're supporting characters along the way. But She's a beast in that movie. Oh, my goodness. And not a, not a Del Toro beast. It, just, just a beast. Or beast maybe mode. a Del Toro beast. I, they're, they're always good in the end. I, I really enjoyed her performance. She was phenomenal. Most definitely. And we would say, you know, looking at the film... Are there technical issues? Sure. Like, is a director going to get everything right about being in space and all that stuff? Yeah, he's not a techie. So yeah. he, I don't care, not, actually. 
I, I didn't either. I was like, man, some of these these scenes were so magnificent. It's like, just enjoy the brilliance mm-hmm. of these long shots the where yes. there's this debris that's going by. Sandra Bullock is getting flipped and tossed and thrown for like minutes with no break Did you see away. that movie in the theater? Yeah, I did. In the theater, I remember feeling like I, w- I was hanging out to my chair yeah. because... You feel like you're being tossed in space with her. Literally. I walked out of the theater anxious. Exactly. So, like, I'm usually, if I'm watching Netflix, um, I'll usually do something else on the side. You know, I'll work on something. I'll send an email. I'm editing photos. Something. Yeah. I could not take my eyes away as I was watching Gravity. I was, like, I'm trying to, like, work on something else, and I was just captivated. And I was like looking at the time markers, like, okay, she's at, by herself at this 30 minute mark. And then I would look at another time stamp and I'm like, <gasps> 30 minutes just went by. And it felt like four minutes watching her deal with all of the tragedies that were coming her way. It was, it was mind boggling. Yeah. So exactly. I, I really like that he was pushing the technological boundaries, just creating things that were, you know, for the purpose of this particular movie. So I think he thought it would be like a simple movie. A person is trapped in space. For him, as he's making this film, after seeing Sandra Bullock's performance, he's like, oh man, I got to up my game. We got to bring the production up to her quality. While at the same time, yeah. you know, she returns wow. the compliments and, and credits Guadon with her success in the film. Oh yeah. Lots of love being thrown around there. I mean, you know, Hollywood, like you're not going to promote something and be like, that guy was a, you know, but it, it's still pretty dope. They both gave, you know, wonderful performances. If a director, you know, is a performer. But, you know, what they bring individually and as a whole to this film is just absolutely beautiful. So the movie, according to Bullock, is a project of loneliness. Um, she relied on Guadon's voice and direction to navigate a difficult set. What I find astounding about Guadon and his directorial abilities is he can direct one person as brilliantly as he can direct a thousand people. So in his films, you know, there's like these mass crowds where there's so much movement and there's these, you know, incredibly long takes, which takes crazy organizational skills. Yes. And then that same brilliance and excellence with working with a thousand people to working with one person. I mean, I'm speechless. I think he's fire. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) <laughs> so gravity has Quaron's fingerprints all over it he uses long tracking shots to draw the viewers into the conflict it's like watching a car accident and being unable to look away you watch as they struggle in space and and live through the anxiety and suspense Quaron's right you know in some ways about gravity's simplicity but then there's the complexity of being in space so the story though filled with deep human Psychology is a simplistic tale of survival. Another thing that I really enjoyed about Gravity is the juxtaposition and these stark contrasts that Guadon creates. So the first time I saw it was when Sandra Bullock is sharing the story of her daughter's death. And Mm -hmm. it's a close-up kind of of her, but behind her you see the earth. And so it's like this one really intimate story in one person's life juxtaposed against 
seven billion people who yeah. have so many moments and memories in their lives. I was just like, wow, how beautiful. What a wild thought as you look down on the earth and yeah, people are living their lives. There's tragedy happening down there. There's beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful things. There's uh, disasters. Yep. It just looks very peaceful from space. Oh man, it's just crazy. So the second time I think I saw this juxtaposition is there's a moment when there's two surviving astronauts. Basically, there's, you know, all this debris and the U.S. space station is destroyed. These two astronauts are left and they're basically kind of caught onto this piece of material hanging in space that's, you know, attaching them to the Russian spaceship that they're hoping to get to. Those are the technical terms, right? <laughs> of course. Right. And so we, we see like this fight for survival. You know, they're clawing yeah. at anything that they can grab and hold onto to save their lives. Before they're thrown into orbit. <laughs> exactly. So like they're fighting for survival, but then he has to make a sacrificial decision. So everything yeah. in us would say, you know, fight to survive fight to live and he makes the choice to actually like sacrifice himself so that she could live and then he has like such positive attitude as he's drifting off into you know space and it's just encouraging her along the way telling her you're gonna live and looking at earth and he's like oh it's so beautiful so it was just like oh my goodness this again this stark contrast between life and between death, between hope and despair was, was just really beautiful. I see so many biblical parallels in, in that movie. Mm. I think of what the Apostle Peter says in First Peter 1, where he talks about a living hope through the resurrection mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That living hope is kind of the thread in this movie, this, this mm -hmm. hope that, that she has. And I think that there are listeners that can relate to a lot of the themes in this movie. Unexpected hardships, the debris from the Russian space station, you know, loss of relationships. She had one person left, George Clooney, and then he floated away. Mm. Loneliness, literally then having nobody, feeling so alone. And, and maybe that's not the exact reality, but we often feel very lonely in a way that nobody understands us. Hopelessness. There was a, a moment where she thought that this was it. I'm dead. But then oh. there's a beautiful oh, picture. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, so yeah, when yeah. she thinks she's going to die, she says, yeah. we're all going to die. But I'm going to die today. And then she's like, you know, she's talking to, she somehow finds that frequency yeah. to the guy on earth. And she's like, will you pray for me? Will you mourn for me? She's like, I, I never learned how to pray. Nobody taught me. So I was like, oh, my goodness. Wild, right? So, oh. Dito. I was like, oh, man, Dito. I felt so bad for her. I love the picture of rebirth, rebirth oh, that it, yeah. when she is like in that fetal position oh, against, yeah. against the circular door and yeah. she's kind of like tilted sideways, yep. the baby in the womb. Mm -hmm. But then I love the resilience, mm -hmm. um, especially after she thinks she sees George Clooney again. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, she's given up mm -hmm. and she's given new life after that. And she's given hope to say, wait, I can actually do this. And of course, the end of the movie, we know that she makes it back. There's a victory. And 
I love that she hung on to hope, and at the end of it, she was rewarded with that safe landing. So again, we could talk about this forever, but those themes I think were so powerful, and they really paralleled kind of our Christian life in terms of we're living in very difficult times, and often we go through some very hard things, but we have that living hope. And that's dope. (laughs) It's just so dope. Well, the movie was not only a successful production with a 96% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Say what? Also- what percentage? 96%. <laughs> what, what? That's an A. <laughs> That's huge. I never got a 96. <laughs> this movie not only got 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it also earned Guaron some Academy Awards. It is the movie that earned the second most Academy Awards without winning Best Picture in history. He won Best Director, which is, Mm. I thought, very well-deserved. Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. It wouldn't be Cuaron's last time winning Best Director either. Yeah, Robert, it's definitely not his last time winning Best Director. Cuaron, he dug deep in the crevices of his memory to begin his labor of love, Roma. Uh, So let's start by examining the stylistic approach to the movie. Um, The the HD black and white uh, movie opens with water washing across the floor for several minutes as the credits roll. I imagine. Very very several minutes. Yeah. It's so long and and super interesting. Uh, (laughs) I imagine that that some gave up watching it at that point. You know, it it is like, okay, this is interesting. Because in a world where the credits are now at the end, you know, the credits at the beginning is very like 80s, 90s. Um, we, our generation, we like to get to the point, like, okay, let's, let's get this on. Exactly. Yep. Um, and even the black and white style for it to be black and white, but also not be grainy. Um, and you know, not have those like antiquated feels to a film was, was very, an interesting selection as well. Um, you know, the movie, as those who have seen it, it's the movie is painfully slow at times, but yet stunning and captivating the long and, and distant shots almost make it feel like we're we're just watching people live their lives via a hidden camera aka reality tv in some ways shout out keeping up with the kardashians so you know it's kind of like that we get this front row seat into somebody's lives and we get snapshots into a particular time period so there's you know literally a scene where Cleo walks into the camera site and then into a room. Um, the camera lingers and nothing happens for like 30, 45 seconds until she comes out of the room and walks out of the camera site. It's just like, oh, okay. So somebody's moving about and doing something, maybe cleaning or cooking or, you know. So Quadron incorporates these track shots and he uses, you know, them several times throughout the movie. The most famous one, follows Cleo running all the way across the beach into the ocean to save lives. Robert, how did you feel the black and white and just overall pacing, I guess, of the movie served the story? I I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I think the black and white definitely makes it feel like a memory. Yeah. A very crisp memory. Mm -hmm. I think the slow storytelling also served like a memory where he wasn't trying to rush through 
what was happening. He was trying to savor it. It's like when, yeah. when we're trying to remember something, we're trying our hardest to remember every single little detail. Mm. And I feel like that's what he's doing in this movie. He's trying to remember yeah. every little tiny thing. Yeah. And, you know, with that, I really enjoyed that he knew every detail. But the actors, were they were actually, they were never given scripts. They went one scene at a time. And they weren't always aware of what other actors were going to do or say because they wanted to capture that like kind of real moment and, you know, have these really great moments that weren't wasted. So they didn't do a lot of, you know, rehearsals and that kind of thing. So it was very for him like a labor of authenticity as well as a labor of love, like trying to capture these real moments, real responses. Roma is a recreation of Guadon's childhood. If he couldn't recreate something the way that he remembered it, he didn't actually do it. Hmm. Did you know that he traveled around the world to find the actual childhood furniture, his actual childhood furniture, and he purchased about 70 to 80% of it. He was able to recover that much of it. That's a scavenger hunt. Like literally, I was like trying to remember, like what did my childhood house look like? I can't remember. I like, I remember the rug. I'm like, the furniture? I have no clue. I mean, I remember it smelled like manteca at time, but times, but that's it. Um, <laughs> so funny. Yeah, but like, I don't remember. I'm like, this guy, that's amazing that he has so much memory and recall of this stuff. I mean, we're kind of taking him at his word, right? What Good he point. couldn't find, though, he made replicas of them. Yeah, pretty sweet. I knew this, this was deeply personal for him when he said that he even tried to replicate the odors of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what's the point of that? I started to think, you're just basically, yeah, you're just trying to recreate this for yourself in some ways. And there's a movie happening at the same time. I will say, though, there are some scents that bring me back to certain things. So, like, if you ever open up, like, a jar of, like, that wet glue, the white, uh, the, um, pasty, glue. the basty kind. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I You know where I you remember. need, like, a, a stick yeah. to, like... Okay. There's something about that smell that makes me think of kindergarten and like my friends in kindergarten. It's just, or like right. if I like smell a crayon really intensely or something, which I but do if, every day. Just kidding. But if you're directing the movie, they don't have that memory. You're, it's just for you. It, it literally. Like and, I can't smell anything in the movie. How did the movie smell to you? <laughs> it smelled like, I don't know, cloves maybe? If I had to put a name. Right. <laughs> If I have to make make it smell, or maybe seawater at certain points. Interesting. So that's what I was thinking. He's <laughs> he's just, he's doing this all for himself. There happened to be a movie happening. Yeah. He's like, let me recreate my childhood. Hey, roll the camera while we're doing it. Do you want us to move the camera? Just keep it right there for ten minutes, and we're just gonna record. It's all the true. actors left the screen. Oh, just keep it rolling. <laughs> keep for rolling ten anyway. minutes, sir. Ten minutes. Matt, remember the uh, scene where his mom and his dad, and it's pretty much the last time we see them together as his dad rides off in the car. His oh, dad is essentially leaving their family. Yeah, right. The Volkswagen. Spoiler. For Cuaron, as he talks about it, he's like, man, I, I was in such a foul mood directing that day. And he's like, I had no idea why. He's like, everything was wonderful. The team was great. Things were running along smoothly. He said, I had to take a walk away. And then he realized oh my goodness, I'm in a fall mood because of this scene that we're shooting. He's like, I realized I just shot the scene where my father abandoned my family. And 
you know, from his perspective, he's like, as a, as a director, you don't judge your characters. You just try to understand their motivations and relationships. And so he's like giving directions to the actor. Cause he's like, we just weren't getting it. And so he's like conveying to the actor, this is what I want you to exhibit. These are the emotions and the, um, that you need to demonstrate. And he's like, Oh my goodness. For the first time I realized, Oh, this is what my father must've been going through. So he's like, you know, from the director's point of view, he was like, it was so easy to tell him this is what it is. But then from a human perspective and the emotions tied into it, it's just so much more profound. So you're right. That emotive piece, the this is just for him. It really it really was for him. (laughs) Right. You know, however, despite the trouble that he went through to relive his memories, the perspective of the movie is not from his. Mm. It's from Cleo. Cleo was modeled after his childhood nanny. Her name is Liboria. That's a good name there. A good, strong name. (laughs) I like it. She was an indigenous mixtec woman uh, that was a part of the family since Squaron was nine months old. And he grew up building a relationship with this woman. Her story sounded like a fantasy adventure to a young Alfonso Cuaron who could not understand what it was like coming from her context. Unlike the big city that Guaron was from, Libo came from a rural area called Oaxaca. Libo had three societal strikes against her. Number one, she was poor. Number two, she was indigenous background. Right. And number three, she was a woman in the 1970s. In a Variety.com article, Guaron said it was probably my own guilt about social dynamics, class dynamics, racial dynamics. I mean, all the dynamics. Uh, He said, I was a white, (laughs) middle-class Mexican kid living in a bubble. I didn't have awareness. I mean, when you're young, like, who really has, you know, awareness? You basically believe what your parents tell you, and that you have to be nice to people who are less privileged than you and all of that. But you're in your childhood universe. So in the eyes of the kid, you know, Cleo, she was a family member, though it was clear that the parents saw her as the help, at least in the beginning yeah. of the film. Like there's a moment when the dad says, oh, it's always a mess here. And mm-hmm. then the pan tracks down with Cleo through the house and it's immaculate. It's beautiful. Everything like looks lovely. Right. So, you know, I think the dad really saw her as the help, but the mom has such compassion for her, really embraces Cleo when she she has her hardest moments. And so I think despite the fact that she was, quote, just a nanny for their family, she was just so much more. And because of that, he wanted to honor her in this film more on whether or not he accomplished this later. But this was really, I think, a beautiful attempt at at showing love to someone that impacted him so greatly. Well, one thing I was going to say with with um, the mother embracing Cleo, I think that that changed a lot when her husband walked out on her. Oh, yeah. And her compassion rose at that point. There was a time where she was yelled at for allowing the boy to, to spy on her in a conversation. Yeah. So there were times where I feel like the mother would still, she would still revert back mm. to seeing Cleo as the help. Mm-hmm. But there was an effort to, to embrace her as yeah. a daughter, especially as she was going through so, some hard 
You're um, things right. in her life. I, I wonder if it's the almost sisterhood element that arises once the once the dad kind of abandons their family. Yeah, that's a good word, sister. And it's like, man, now I only have, you know, this person to rely on. Because you're right. Like, there's the scene with the caca <laughs> in the driveway. Yeah. And they're like, clean up the caca. Yeah. And I, I was like, I feel that, though. I was like, Cleo, yo, bro, like, clean that up. <laughs> I know. That was There was a lot. How long did she leave that? Go- How many dogs were there? Just, <laughs> Just the, the one, one, right? Come yeah. on, Cleo. I was like, you just do that like once a day. And to me, that was like, I get you, mama. (laughs) I would be mad too. But it was, you're right. Well, she's kind of taking care of the kids. She's kind of overwhelmed and kind of holding things together. So She wakes them up. She puts them to bed. She feeds them. She entertains them. She cooks for them and clean. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. She don't got time to be cleaning up no (laughs) poo-poo. I love the story of this woman. And the girl that played Cleo was I thought just super stellar Yalitza Aparicio uh, she was a mistaken woman um, it was her she was preparing for a career in teaching and wasn't going to audition for the role but her sister insisted and of course when Guadon called her to offer her the role she agreed stating that she had nothing to do since she hadn't started teaching it ay que lindo I got nothing better to do, right? Hey, yeah. why not? I'll just I'll just make this uh, Academy Award-winning movie, sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Had she known, oh my goodness, that I bet the weight of the world would have been so much bigger on her shoulders. And that's kind of the interesting thing. When you see Alitza, it's plain that she's indigenous. Mm-hmm. Guaron didn't go for some refined, dark-skinned Mexican woman. He wasn't looking for what Hollywood would normally think of as, okay, this... This model, he goes for somebody who looks like a normal person, just a person that we we might meet. The film constantly goes against the grain of Hollywood in order to stay true to his childhood memories. Donnie, did this film succeed or fail, in your opinion, in telling Cleo's story? I want to say in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. You know, in one sense, we are really just kind of given a snapshot into a moment of Alfonso Cuaron's life. So we see things from so many different perspectives. We see things from Cleo's perspective. We see things from his perspective. We see, you know, the mom's perspective at points. So it's interesting that, you know, the storytelling takes so many different, you know, there's really no one true narrator. The film it just happens to be rolling at these different moments. Almost, you know, it's almost like happenstance. Like, oh, the camera happens to be here and is capturing these different moments along the way. I think for Cleo or Libo's story, how much do we really know each other? So like even those that we love, even myself, I surprise myself and how <laughs> right. little I know about me. I'm like, ooh, I didn't expect I was going to snap off at that. Or, you know, or, oh, my goodness, I didn't know I was going to be so elated or surprised or happy by this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know me all that well. And we can only know other people so well. So for a little boy's recollection of somebody that he loved, um, I think think the movie did justice 
for giving us a snapshot into a moment. You know, I mean, it's probably the time span of just a couple months, maybe at most, I would yeah. say. So I think for, for what we're given, the time span that we had, and the perspective. Maybe like a year. Yeah, at most, Cleo, right? Cleo got, got pregnant. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Time. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I forgot we traveled with her through the whole pregnancy. Although, yeah, you're right, because she missed a couple months. Yep. So there's that piece of it. But then, like, also, how much do we know people that we work with or that work for us or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, there's only so much intimacy that, that can be had. So I, I yeah. think yes and no. What are your thoughts? You know, I I was going to kind of come in hard at this point, at one point. I was going to say that Alfonso who admits that he grew up in a privileged home mm-hmm. from a light-skinned Mexican background. He said this. He came from a middle-class background, and he admitted that Lebo or Cleo, whoever we're talking about, is from an ind- indigenous background. And those mm-hmm. three strikes were his words, that mm-hmm. she had three strikes in society against her. Mm-hmm. So as I watched the movie, I wanted to say, we don't learn much about Cleo. Like, we see her just in the context. We see her a little bit, you know, spending time with, with her boyfriend, with the worst boyfriend in the history of boyfriends. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. I mean, horrible dude. Mm-hmm. Like, when he snapped at her. Wow. And, I mean, <sighs> which, I, which I have a thought about that in one second. About- the human in me rose up. I was oh like, my ooh, goodness. I just want to. But. What a bad man. He was telling the story from his memories. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to give the history right. of Cleo. He was trying to do her justice in the context of his memories of Lebo. Yes. He brought her in. He interviewed her. So my, my opinion changed because of what I realized he was trying to accomplish. And if this was a biography of Cleo, mm-hmm. then I would mm-hmm. say – it, it missed the mark. Yeah. But I think it did honor her in many in many different ways. Yeah. And it made me feel so deeply for her. She was she had it all together. They would yell at her and she would just keep her mm-hmm. composure mm-hmm. at all times. She was a solid rock. Yeah. And at the end of the movie when she went into labor and then she miscarried mm-hmm. and she was in pain and she was crying. It moves me because mm-hmm. you you had not seen her like that the entire movie. Yeah. And then her on the beach confessing mm-hmm. that she didn't really want this baby mm-hmm. and feeling guilt over the stillborn. That was so sad. So leading up to that, the shooting of that scene, um, Alfonso Cuaron did not yet let um, Yalitza know that the baby was going to be born stillborn. So she went into the scene thinking that she was going to have an actual baby. Like the surprise or the shock from the scene when she went into it. So they only shot it one time. Uh, She went into it thinking, um, oh, like the big surprise element is that a baby is, like a real baby is going to come out and then I'm going to have to like hold this real baby. So for her, all the emotion that went into that scene of, you know, losing the baby and all that stuff was actual, her real kind of response to... Yalitza killed it in this movie. She sold it. Every scene. 100%. We talked about the camera style. 
those wide shots, those distant shots, or the track. It's almost like on a little roller coaster track, right? Mm-hmm. The camera is on. Um, but there was one scene in the movie that I thought felt like almost a different movie. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to watch it again. But there's a scene when she's uh, shopping for cribs. Oh, right, right, right. And you see this this group, like the Hawks. I forget what they're called exactly. Yeah. They came in. They kill a guy in the store. The camera pans over, and you see a gun. Yeah. And then it pans over some more, and you see that it's Cleo's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he hadn't done that much in the movie, like give you a little piece and then reveal with like pan out. Yeah. It was always like the scene was just there and people would walk in and out of it. And then he turns the screen to the side and you see that he's pointing a gun at mm-hmm. Cleo mm-hmm. and at grandma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just pointing that out as that was kind of one of the only times where I was like, oh, yeah, this reminds me of just a, a classic movie. Show a little bit, uh, pan back, show a little bit more and then pan out and you see the full picture because yeah. most of the time it's just it almost feels like you're watching a play. There it is. He sets the camera. People walk in and out of scene. You're so right. For me, I liked the unveiling, if you will, of that. Like, yes. So it was like a slow drawback of what we were actually seeing. And then I think that group, the Alconaso, I think is what they're called yeah. or something like that. This like radicalized just group of young guys. Yep. It was like, oh, that's who he's a part of. It's not like an actual martial arts group, but they're like, bad guys trained by the government to basically suppress democracy in Mexico. Yeah. That's crazy. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. But that scene was intense. And the dedication that Guaron had to film scenes like that, building entire streets because they no longer exist the same way that they were, shooting the house that he actually grew up in, like the same street, having all those, you know, he's like, we could have done it at another street. He's like, I would have known it needed yeah. to feel real for me. And uh, even he had a big house, by the way, he, they did have a really they big, had a big house. house. It was beautiful. I mean, like middle-class all the way. I was like, yeah. okay, I see y'all. Yeah, I was like, I thought I was middle-class growing up. But I didn't have a house like that. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. And then I think, for Guaron, from what he says, is Roma's the first film that he's done that truly embodies the kind of cinema that he aspires to make, which I think is, you know, just completely unlike anything else he has ever done, ever. Even the level of actors that he brought in, you know, for his past movies that we know and we love, they're you know, actors, they're professional actors. They're Sandra Bullock and George Clooney's. Oh my goodness. So then going from that to, you know, kids that have never acted before, a main star, Yalitza, who's never acted before, uh, was just phenomenal. Amazing stuff. Wow. Yeah, I like it. So, uh, you know, of course, despite the controversy of, you know, did we know Cleo in the film, a.k.a. Lebo in real life, uh, I think we can overall say that Guaron has had a positive effect on movie making and has given us some really memorable moments in film. Definitely. It's good stuff. Have you ever watched a movie and wondered what it would have looked like in the hands of another director? Or yes. maybe you wonder 
how your favorite director would have directed any given film. Yeah. Well, that leads us to our next segment called Deleted Scenes. Is there a movie out there, one that has not yet been made, that you would like to have seen directed by Alfonso Cuaron? Donnie. This is a fabulous question. Honestly, Robert, for Cuaron, it was much harder for me to identify something that I would like him to see because, again, the styles that we have to look at so far vary so greatly. However, if Roma is the style of film that he aspires to be and to shoot, I would say maybe a moment in United States history where an action or whatever happened changed the course of our nation. So either the assassination of MLK or John F. Kennedy or fast forward to 911, seeing him do something with that tragedy, maybe even seeing him do something on, on COVID-19 and origins and, and something like that. Yeah, I was going to say uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Um, but then I changed my mind. But yeah, you, you're so you can't... silly. Are you serious? You yeah, I thought. It, I, yeah, no, I'm being dead serious. I thought that what? could be kind of interesting. Yeah, he did a great job with Harry Potter. So, uh, um, that's hilarious. I just thought maybe some of his his angles and maybe giving a little bit more depth to the turtles. I'm all for that. But anyway, <laughs> Bro, it's, you know, turtles like is actually answer. serious. Like originally, it was like a serious like comic. Oh, like the comic books or yeah. the yep. the cartoon yeah. series not a comic book so I said, I, you know I've, I've never read the comic so i would have no idea all my only like first references were the cartoons which are silly mm. so so you've kind of referenced the one i had i'd be interested to see him focus on a community that is struggling through the pandemic racial injustices and riots oh yeah just maybe a, a couple of weeks like of 2020 yeah so. that would be awesome yeah well Finally, we've come to the part of our show that we call the post-production. What is post-production? This is where we go beyond the film and give our final takes on Alfonso Cuaron. We'll either give you our personal takeaways or how he influenced the entertainment world. So, Donnie, what's your personal takeaway or final take on Alfonso Cuaron? All right. So I'd actually like to use the time to talk about the cinematographer that he has worked with on so many of his films in reference to, you know, the final take for Alfonso Cuaron. I, I really enjoy his loyalty, dedication to when he finds talent, he sticks with that talent and his cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki is just fire. Yes. So Lubezki is, you know, frequently collaborator with Cuaron and Alejandro Ñárritu. So if you haven't listened in to our second episode of the season just yet we highlight Alejandro and Yaritu. Lubeski and Cuaron they've been friends since they were teenagers attended the same film school together they worked on six motion pictures including Solo con tu pareja A Little Princess Great Expectations Y tu mama también Children of Men and Gravity Lubeski he was nominated for eight Academy Awards for Best Cinematographer, winning three for Gravity, Birdman, and The Revenant. He's the first cinematographer in history to win three consecutive Academy Awards. So shout out to just an all-star cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki. Throwing it over to you, Robert. What is your final takeaway? 
This is my takeaway. We need more people like Guaron in Hollywood and in life. A person who's willing to admit his failures and make no apologies for his vision. His honest portrayal of Khalil's treatment communicates to me that he isn't interested in erasing the past or filtering his memories, but rather learning from them. In a Hollywood full of cookie-cutter franchises that move at a million miles per hour, it was refreshing to see somebody be bold enough to contemplatively slow things down to capture the beauty in the mundane things of life. Can we all just pause for a moment and look out the window? If you can, take a stroll through the park. Observe the birds and hear the music. I'm sorry, watch the raindrops trickle off branches. Feel the warmth of the sun and smell the things that grow from the earth. Savor every embrace. Be still and listen to God's voice. Soak in every moment, both good and difficult. Stop and live life in real time. That's what I get from his movies. Well, unfortunately, this brings us to the end credits. Mischief Managed. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Mixed Take. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts so that we're not haunted at night by dementors that want to steal the joy right out of our faces. <laughs> I hate when joy is stolen right out of my face. Exactly. It's like my least favorite thing. Me too. Also, head over to worldoutspoken.com, a site preparing the Mestizo Church for cultural change, yes. where you'll find information on consulting services, thought-provoking blog posts, and other great podcasts, such as The Feature, right, Questions right. from the Pew, yep. and the one and the only Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. Weba. And check out the Fire Collection hey. on Afro-Latino. So this articles. Including the article, <laughs> Double Punishment, Immigration and Anti-Blackness, that speaks on the complexities of the Afro-Latino experience and the cultural limbo that our society creates. Yes. And special thanks to our producer, the one, the only, Michelle Perez. What, what? Also thanks to Emmanuel Padilla and the World Outspoken crew. We hope you join us again as we continue to dive into the world of culture-influencing content creators. Until next time. Cut. It's a wrap. Cut. It's a wrap.